1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner from the University of Southern California, and I'm glad to be back after a bit of a hiatus. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Andreas Killen, who's professor of history at City College New York, where he was last year Stuart Z. Katz Professor in the Humanities and Arts. Professor Killen teaches a range of courses on modern European history and the history of science, medicine, and psychiatry. And he's a prolific author whose books include Berlin Electropolis, Shock, Nerves, and German Modernity, 1973 Nervous Breakdown, Homo Cinematica: Science, Motion Pictures, and the Making of Modern Germany, as well as the book we'll be discussing today, Nervous Systems, Brain Science in the Early Cold War, which was published earlier this year by HarperCollins. Welcome, Andreas. It's a great pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Paul. It's great to be here. I'm honored
1: to be able to, uh, to talk about my book with you.
0: It's a real pleasure. I, I enjoyed it so much, and I've read um, a lot of your work. And uh, obviously, we we go back a few years, but it, so it's been um, a special pleasure to kind of see how things have developed, and you know, see the um, where where your thinking is now about a lot of issues, and um, especially as you kind of broke into new topics here. Um, so I want to just start by giving you an opportunity to tell listeners about yourself, to tell about how you have kind of developed over the years as a scholar, as a historian, and how this project in particular came about. So please share any autobiographical details um, about your intellectual journey that you'd like to share with us today. Sure. Happy to. Um, so, yes, Um Uh, I I mean, in some ways,
1: this book is an outgrowth of earlier work that I have done. Um, As you mentioned, we go back a long ways. Um, um, We're both German historians who focused um, a lot on German psychiatry in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And much of my work has been in that vein. Um, So... In some ways, this new book project, which does not deal with Germany. It deals with it deals with um, basically developments in the United States and England after the Second World War um, is a sort of departure for me, but one that, you know, um, it continues my interests, broadly speaking, in the field of medicine, psychiatry, Um neuroscience biomedicine and so forth um i had also written a, quite a long time ago i had written a book um a book of sort of popular history about the united states in the 1970s and um some of the themes that i explored in that book too have resurfaced in the context of this project so in some ways the book um, that we're talking about now, nervous systems, brain science in the, uh, early cold war represents a kind of convergence of these, these somewhat, um, separate, um, um, projects that I, you know, have worked on over, over a period of many years. Um, uh, I, at, at one point also in the not too distant past, I, co-organized and co-edited a special volume of a journal devoted to the history of brainwashing. I'm going to put that in scare quotes, brainwashing. Um, And that sparked a real interest in me because, again, that was a that, you know, that theme marks a real convergence of of numerous long term interests that I've had. Um, But then I decided that I didn't really want to write simply about brainwashing, but I I really wanted to learn more about and write about the scientific kind of landscape within which it became possible to imagine something like brainwashing, which, you know, I, I'll just say here at the outset is a kind of mythic notion, but one that doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, It's, you know, it's, it's, it, it can, you know, there are many points of, of of origin for this construct in in the in the politics of that period but also in the science of that period so um Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the real, the real kind of moment of inspiration occurred when I was, I walked into my local bookstore, I'll I'll give it a shout out, Unnamable Books, which is a few minutes away from where I live here in Brooklyn. And I saw on the science section of the bookstore, a used copy of a book called The Living Brain by a figure named Gray Walter. This book was published in 1953 and it is a kind of it's a work of scientific popular, popularization which introduces its readership to many of the important developments that take place in that period in the field of brain science and i totally fell under the spell of this book and decided that that was going to be my sort of starting point point. And, and 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 then you know i just used that as a way to open up different Um, different avenues um, in which to tell my story.
0: That's great. And he's such an intriguing figure. Um, But many of the figures you discuss in this book, some, some, I think familiar to the readers who come to the book and others probably completely unknown and obscure They're They're all eclectic and creative and a bit mad and, you know, really fascinating, I think. Um, And in a way, I think one of the things that really brings the book alive is the both the scientists or the cultural figures you talk about, but also the patients. And I, I, w- I wanted to kind of, um, one thing that's really striking is that you give a lot of attention to some patients and you include their stories kind of like between chapters as these excursies. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that choice that you made, kind of the editorial authorial choice about including the patients in that way and kind of how you really saw that aspect of of the work you were doing. Yeah. Um sure.
1: I mean in 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 certain ways this is a somewhat idiosyncratic book because as you note, there are chapters, and it's conventional in that way. But these chapters are interspersed with what I choose to call clinical tales, in which I do focus on the stories of certain key patients. So the chapters themselves are largely devoted to the work of key uh, of different scientists and other figures, um, who you know were were picked up aspects of 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 uh, mid century. Um, research in medicine and science. But but then there are a handful, I think half a dozen or so uh, of these tales, each of which is devoted to um, a certain patient. And I decided to, so to give you one example, one of the patients is the very famous uh, patient H.M. Uh, or Henry Mollison. He, he was known as H.M., um, to preserve his confidentiality he is as as some people claim he's the most famous patient in the history of neuroscience he was the subject of a of a kind of um, of a kind of catastrophic um, surgical procedure that took place in the early 1950s that completely destroyed long-term memory and work on him the you know, he, he continued to live up until the, up until, I think he died like 15 years ago. And, you know, his case became the subject of, of, of a great deal of study that contributed to the founding of modern memory science. I really wanted to include that story. I really wanted to include the story of a number of other patients and I simply could not figure out how to do it within the, you know, the structure of my chapter. So I decided that because I wanted to include them, and because I, you know, wanted to include as much as I could a, about the actual experiences and the complexities of those experiences, the the somewhat fraught ethical um, dimensions of uh, of the experiences of, of, of these patients, I decided it made sense to separate them out and treat them, treat them as their own subjects as it were. So that that's, that's, you know, that's how the book wound up being organized the way it is. And I, I mean, I have to say, I I'm really, you know, I had I had to struggle a little bit with the publisher. I mean, I think it was they were, they found that a little bit
0: counterintuitive. But
1: in the end, I, I I they agreed, and I I think they were very happy, and I myself am very happy that they agreed.
0: Yes, I was wondering because it does it's an unconventional structure, and I could see. I was wondering if you had to fight for it in a way because uh, I could see it rankling editors and publishers. But on the other hand, it since the focus of most of the analysis is really on the, on the, on the scientists, it, I think it counteracts it really nicely and balances it and reminds the reader that actually these are, this is about human beings ultimately, right? Not just kind of disembodied brains, which sort of in some ways gets at some, some, some of the concerns of some of the characters you talk about.
1: Yeah. It would be very easy to tell. This is a kind of heroic story of the, Remarkable breakthroughs that you know key figures in the history of science achieve, and and the way in which they, you know, kind of revolutionized our understanding of the brain and of consciousness and so forth. But that leaves out a lot. It leaves out ultimately. It leaves out far too much.
0: But since you mentioned that, that's actually a great segue because I was hoping we could kind of dive in a little bit and talk about some of those breakthroughs, um, many of which are still kind of part of the neuroscientific arsenal and some of which have completely disappeared. Um, more about that later, I think, but um, if we we can't be comprehensive, we you know can't go through the whole book. but if you wanted to maybe pick out a couple of interventions or developments from the 1950s, because I, I guess um, for those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, in my reading, one of the central arguments is that the 1950s, it kind of ushers in this new era of um, in some ways where the brain kind of replaces the atom as the sort of, right. The signal of scientific modernity and advancement and um, one with, with a kind of parallel set of political and cultural ramifications. ramifications. Um, And this kind of the life sciences then sort of edge out the physical sciences in some ways as the queen of sciences or something like that. And in, in some ways this is, Pione- powered by kind of new perspectives, new approaches, new techniques and technologies of studying the brain that, right, that allow new um, kinds of insights and investigations. Or if, if, if there are a couple or, or one that you'd love to share with us, I think that might be really interesting. Okay, yeah, uh, happy to. So um,
1: just by way of preamble, I mean, I think it's important to convey the fact that prior to this period, Um, scientists had not really been able to study brain function and dysfunction prior to post-mortem investigation. I mean, the brain that was largely studied by scientists in the 19th and early 20th centuries was the brain of patients who had died. Um, But in the, I mean, this was already beginning to develop in the decades before the 1950s, of course, but, 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 um, in the 1950s, several parallel lines of inquiry converged to make it possible to really kind of open up and probe what Greg Walter in his book called The Living Brain. And, and so in my book, there are three major um, kind of uh, a- approaches that. Um, um, that that are important to the story. One of them is something that Gray Walter himself was very closely associated with, and that is electroencephalography, so EEG, which made it possible for scientists to study brainwave brainwave activity, um, and to gain insight in so doing, to gain insight in a, in an entirely new way, gain insight into, um, the functioning and again, dysfunctioning of the brain, um, as measurable by fluctuations in brainwave activity that could be captured and recorded on the EEG. So that was quite a revolutionary, um, uh, a, quite a revolutionary development. And that, you know, it, in many ways, the EEG is, is probably the key technology uh, of, of this moment. And I devote a lot of attention to that. Um, if you want me to, I can briefly discuss two other... Um, two other um, sure, go ahead. Um, uh, developments. One of them is... So one of the surprises to me in this story was the importance of, of epilepsy. Um, you know, my, I had gone into the book thinking that I'd be writing a lot about mental illness and mental illness does, you know, it does, it is a theme in the book, but I pay I wound up to my surprise, paying far more attention to, um, research into epilepsy and, um, uh, which you know became in many ways foundational for subsequent developments uh, that led to the emergence of modern neuroscience. And one of the key um, developments in, in the field of epilepsy was was um, the work of a of a Montreal uh, neurosurgeon named Walter Penfield, who was based uh, at McGill University, who pioneered a technique that allowed him to. Operate on patients with epilepsy while they remain conscious, and um, um, he was able to bring relief to many of his patients. I mean, this was a true. This too was a truly revolutionary phenomenon. But in doing so, he also he also um, made some quite remarkable discoveries about about, um, you know, the phenomena of epilepsy and the way in which it seems to be connected with, or it seemed to him to be connected with certain kinds of, um, experiences, hallucinations, or as he came to believe memories that, that were triggered when he lightly brushed his electrode across the surface of a patient's exposed cortex. So, that is a whole fascinating story unto itself. And, um, I, I, I basically devote a whole chapter to that. And then the last of these that I'll mention very briefly is the study of sensory deprivation, which was pioneered by Penfield's colleague, Donald Hebb, a neuropsychologist. Um, in part, This field of inquiry emerged out of Hebb's research into neurophysiology, but in part, it related also to the political context of the time. This is the first decade of the Cold War. Um, The nascent American national security state is beginning to recruit scientists, figures in the fields of brain and behavioral science to help it understand the kinds of mysterious new afflictions associated with the Cold War brainwashing. Mind control and so on, and sensory deprivation became very important in that. It also, it also, it too contributed quite significantly to opening up, um, uh, opening up um, the mind or opening up consciousness to science, scientific study. It became, for Hebb in particular, it became very important as a way of kind of breaking the stranglehold of behaviorism over his field behaviorism had through much of the preceding decades been the kind of hegemonic um, discourse of, of psychology and 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 for behaviorists you know human beings are known through their actions through their behavior what was you know any everything else was a black box um, the brain the mind these are all black boxed um, and it was you know it was Hab along with a group of other people Um who began to pry open that black box and in and, 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 and and, and so doing to help bridge the gap between psychology and neurophysiology
0: in ways that, again, were hugely important for subsequent developments. It's interesting to hear you characterize it that way because um, the sort of looking for models that are more sophisticated than what the behaviorists present uh, kind of opens up all of these new new possibilities, which then tap into some of the technologies and innovations you talked about. And um, kind of, I think another theme that runs through the book is the status of, let's say, kind of two distinct but occasionally intertwined discourses about about mind and consciousness, um, namely kind of Freudian psychoanalysis on one side and Pavlov uh, and reflexology on the other side. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you know, where do Freud and Pavlov fit into this story and kind of what, um, in what ways do the changes of the fifties kind of create more space for Freudian psychoanalysis and in, mo- in what ways do they displace psychoanalysis, which had a kind of, as you point out, a kind of American heyday right after world war two.
1: Yeah. So um, the 1950s were, you know, they're commonly referred to in histories of psychoanalysis as a sort of golden age Um for for that field um um you know it's almost kind of um hard to comprehend now but over half of practicing psychiatrists in the country, I mean, these are people at leading institutions across the country, or people who had at least one foot squarely in the psychoanalytic camp. Many of them were out and out psycho- psychoanalysts. So, anyways, I mean, psychoanalysis had an enormous presence in 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 the field in in the landscape of mental health treatment during this period. Um, but psychoanalysis, you know, really skirted the question of of the relationship between its It's theories about, you know, the function, you know, for instance, it's theories about the conscious that, you know, the ego, the superego, the unconscious, how those relate or related to, you know, um, the brain to neurophysiological processes um, was something that most psychologists, I'm sorry, most psychoanalysts. Uh, preferred not to, you know, preferred not to address for them too. The brain was, in a certain sense, a black box. There were exceptions to that. Um, there definitely were quite important exceptions to that. There were there were you know interesting figures who during this period sought to sought to bridge the divide between between Freudianism and neurophysiology. Um, um, And, you know, so some very fascinating results came out of those efforts to, um, find a a rash, a a rapprochement. Um, but in, 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 in general, those efforts, um, did not, did not, you know, did not really, um, enjoy much, much success. Um, and, and, you know, although this was in many ways, um, sort of the heyday of psychoanalysis is also the decade that marked the beginning, the beginnings of a, the emergence of a whole new approach that ultimately totally displaced psychoanalysis within the landscape of mental health care, because this is a decade in which, um, um, new forms of psychopharmacology drugs like Thorazine and, and other drugs, um, uh, began to appear on the marketplace and these, you know, completely transformed, um, approaches to mental health care, Um, um, so much so that by the time we get to, you know, a few, only a few decades later on, 1980 in, in, in the third edition of the DSM, um, that approach, the psychopharmacological approach has completely vanquished. Psychoanalytic categories, language theories. Um, so this is a, you know, in many ways, this is a kind of pivotal moment, a hinge moment, um, with respect to the larger history of psychoanalysis um, in the in, in in at least in the United States. Um, and uh, you would like me to say something about Pavlov? Sure. Pavlov is a Really, really fascinating figure. Again, this is, this you know, I wasn't quite prepared to discover just how, how fascinating he is, or how 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 fascinated the scientists of this period were by his work. But he was he was hugely important. Um, his work was hugely important. Um, he, um, the historian Jack Pressman has argued that it was the Pavlovian school of experimental physiology um, that really became sort of the, the master discipline of, of, uh, of um, medical science, um, because it, 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 it lent support to, to a whole array of, um, of, of techniques of kind of creating experiment sort of experimentally creating various kinds of various forms of mental illness, neurosis, epilepsy, and so forth that, that could be produced and studied in the lab as a way of, 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 of gaining new knowledge of these conditions. So that was, you know, his, his work has a very large presence, um, in, in the developments that I write about in the book. At the same time, however, it should be noted that there's a whole kind of layer of paranoia surrounding Pavlovian science because, um, um, you know, as the Cold War got underway and as, you know, the West became increasingly alarmed by um, accounts of what was being done, say, to dissidents in Eastern Europe or to American prisoners of war in Korea, the notion that invasive techniques of, of, of deconditioning or reconditioning or programming or brainwashing um, these people um, uh, was believed to have a distinctly kind of Pavlovian um, characteristic to it. And, 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 and so there's... Pavlov is is a is a you know he emerges as a um, as a very ambivalent figure in in, in this period, uh, it, you know even somebody like Hannah Arendt in the Origins of Totalitarianism seems to buy into uh, a certain view that that it is Pavlovian science that the total totalitarian regimes are using um, to break down. Um, you know, concentration camp inmates and 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 you know render them docile and 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 malleable. So that's you know that's just one instance of the way in which Pavlov's undeniable influence gets sort of taken up in political discourse and and in some ways you know woven into a very a very Powerful, yet at the same time, very problematic kind of discourse about the ways in which science is being perverted in 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 the Soviet bloc.
0: I was going to say, I guess this fact that Pavlov was Russian and the Soviets' interest in Pavlov um, seems to have colored the this you know at a moment of extreme Cold War paranoia, right? The, this fear of what the Soviets might be capable of and what kind of right, nefarious methods they might be using to brainwash populations and so forth. Yeah. Um, even though Pavlov, I think himself, well, I guess he was long gone by then. And those applications were very far from what was, what he was thinking about in his research program. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, so one, we, we're starting to get into politics. And I think one of the, in a way, one thing that makes this book similar to your earlier work is that you, I think always um, in ways that are very suggestive and, and, and very well executed, you talk about, scientific and medical ideas in political and cultural context, you know, whether it's Weimar German telephone operators or cinema goer, you know, discussions about the effects of cinema on mental health and mood and so forth. Um, these are political questions too, in addition to being scientific and medical questions and also cultural questions. So I think in um, this book really, you know, kind of brings all of these elements into dialogue with each other and in ways that are really fascinating. And I think to me, one thing that, what's really surprising is the way that f- fiction and science are kind of intertwined. And that's right. That sci- science of course is the basis for fiction and science fiction in particular and all kinds of utopian and dystopian scenarios, but it, but it works the other way too. And, uh, and so there, there's a lot of film and a lot of fiction in, in the, among the material that you discuss here. And, um, I thought that was, that really struck me and it made the book, I think it'll, it makes the book probably interesting to different audiences, which is a great thing in a book. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about this relationship between science and fiction and how it plays out um, through chapters.
1: Yeah. So again, maybe a, a little by way of clarification, my book is divided into three parts. The first part deals primarily with the, you know, the scientific story of the brain in the 1950s. The second part deals with. The way in which the brain enters into the politics of 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 that moment, the politics of the Cold War, and then the th- third part deals with the way in which the brain finds its way into into mid century culture, including mass culture. Um, and so, um, yeah, I I I I um, I think that. Um, how, how should I? How should I? How should I go about this? I mean, what? So, so maybe I'll say this. I mean, one of the kind of aha moments of my research came when I was looking at the papers of a man named Edward Hunter. So, Edward Hunter was a fascinating figure in his own right. He was a. He worked for the OSS, which was the predecessor to the CIA. I think he continued to have. A, a, Ongoing relationship with the Central Intelligence Agency after the war, but he also he also uh, was a journalist, and it is Hunter who you know um, introduced the, the the term brainwashing into Cold War discourse, um, and 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 played a key role in sort of imprinting this notion, etching this notion deeply into. You know, into um, Western consciousness of what was at stake in the Cold War, namely the belief that the Soviets and their allies were were, were using were using scientific methods of, of of manipulation and indoctrination and and programming and so forth. So, one of the um, I, as I said, one of the aha moments for me came when I was reading Hunter's papers. And I came across a reference in a letter that he wrote to a friend of his to this book that I mentioned already, Gray Walters, The Living Brain. So that was like a moment where these two um, you know these two quite different strands of discourse converged in, in 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 a you know in a kind of beautiful moment. I have to say, I was really like that just lit up my face. Um, I was excited. I was very excited about that. So you know, it turns out that 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 people like Hunter um, and not only Hunter but 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 you know others as well were reading. The works of contemporary um, neuroscientists and, and 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 specialists in the sciences of the brain and the behavior, as a way of both um, trying to understand what they imagined was going on behind the iron curtain in terms of a kind of campaign of mind control, and also then um, um, you know providing empirical evidence for a construct that always remained highly, um, highly, um, um, uncertain. And, and this, you know, this also goes to your question about fiction because of the, 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 um, the high degree of uncertainty and a sort of empirical, um, you know, um, shakiness of the notion of brainwashing, um, people found, people often drew on works of fiction. So for instance, Orwell's uh, 1984 or Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon or um, um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World to, again, help them imagine and sort of make predictive claims about... The true nature of totalitarian reality. Even somebody like you know the the Soviet specialists in the in 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 the American government, George Kennan, the, the you know the sort of one of the one of the um, most important figures in, in 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 the early Cold War, George Kennan, openly admitted that when he tried to when he tried to imagine totalitarianism as a reality. He relied upon the fictions of Orwell and Kessler and 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 uh, and Huxley. So fiction fiction in it actually has an enormously played an enormously important role in 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 helping the West gain knowledge of the enemy and what it was prepared to do in its in its in its supposed quest for worldwide domination,
0: it reminded me of White Noise, um, the Don DeLillo book, right? Where his ex-wife, Jack's ex-wife, is reading spy fiction for the CIA or something, um, right? So you know, I think he's strong on tapping into the same vein here that you are. Um, yeah, and but but I guess there, I mean, there is a lot of fantasy, that, and and what I'm kind of intrigued by is where. Fantasy and science are—you know—it's hard to know where one starts and the other continue. One stops and the other starts in some ways, right? Because these ideas of brainwashing, as you said already, are fairly fantastical. Although they are based on—they're not based on nothing—but they're also very far from being realistic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's brainwashing is such a fascinating notion. Um. And it is so, despite the fact that it's a myth. I mean, I you know, I I I think, despite the very best efforts of people like Edward Hunter, who I was just talking about, it you know, it was it remained a myth, and 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 most of the sort of more sober kind of scientific or social scientific experts who weighed in on this debate recognized it clearly as such. Many people in the American government recognized it clearly as such. And yet the myth produced these enormously powerful reality effects. It, 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 you know, it, it was this notion that authorized a massive um, campaign of classified research into uh, mind control under the auspices of something called MKUltra. Um, the historian Alfred McCoy, in reference, you know, in reference to the Manhattan Project, which we've all been, you know, recently reminded of now by the appearance of the film Oppenheimer, referred to this classified program, which was comparable in scope, in secrecy, and in its transgressiveness to the Manhattan Project, as a Manhattan Project of the mind. Um, so, you know, brainwashing remained throughout its history and continues to remain, remain so up until the present day, a problematic construct. And yet,
0: one with staying power. It, yeah,
1: people took it very literally, very seriously. Um, yeah, and and carried out all kinds of unspeakable um acts in the belief that something had to be done.
0: I mean, and... It reminds me also of the kind of panic about hypnosis back in the 19th century, late 19th century, that people were right, which you see in Caligari in the early, you know, in the Weimar period and and on through something like Manchurian Candidate, which you devote some attention to in this book.
1: Yeah. It maps completely onto that whole discourse of, of hypnosis, which, as you say, goes back to the 19th century in which, you know, was it both a scientific research tool and a, and a, and a, and, and an inst- and a therapeutic instrument and also the source of tremendous anxiety and, and, and panic. Um, and yeah, one finds that, one finds that similar kind of complex um, dynamic um, surrounding the, the possibility of, 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 you know, of, Gaining control of subjects at a deep neural level, um, uh, which, you know, and, and and this culminates. I mean, I've referred to MKUltra, this is the name, the code name given to this classified um, mind control research program. That program lasted for about a decade. It culminates in the year 1963 when the CIA uh, finalized. Um, a a document a secret document called kubark some of your listeners may be familiar with that name because it resurfaced in the aftermath of the torture scandal kubark was the was the manual that the cia finalized at the end of of mk ultra on interrogation and it remained it you know, it remains, as far as I understand, in service up until today. And it was, it was, it was being used by, by, you know, the people carrying out enhanced interrogation, um, in the early stages of, of the war on terror. Um, Kubark, interestingly enough, Kubark came out at more or less the exact same time that the Manchurian candidate was released. And so there's, there's an interesting, you know, chronological, kind of parallel there, but what's also interesting, and this takes us back to the, you know, to the relationship between fiction and reality, is the way in which both Kubark and the film echo each other in key respects. They echo each other in the way that both at certain moments have to deal with the problematic reality of brainwashing. Kubark states very plainly on its first page that there is no, there is no such thing as brainwashing. There is no, there's no, you know, scientific. There's no science of mind control. And yet it goes on <laughs> to act as though there is, and to explore the possibility that you might be able to use certain techniques to believe to to, to force you know the person under interrogation to believe that you are exercising mind control. And in doing so, it cites certain findings, certain scientific papers and certain scientific experts, which themselves then come up in the film. So there's an interesting, a fascinating leakage between the classified, the covert sphere as, as, uh, as um, the scholar, Timothy Mellie, um, uh calls it, the covert sphere of classified operation and the public sphere. Um, you know, much of this research is carried out under the auspices of the secrecy doctrine that was created by the national security state. But that secrecy was never perfect. There was always leakage. And so the Manchurian candidate, I think it represents a very interesting form of exactly that phenomenon, that leakage. Oh, so interesting.
0: Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I think film and mass culture are so important in your discussion, uh, not only in the kind of cultural section of the book, but also kind of film as a metaphor for how the brain works and mass culture, kind of discourses about the effect of mass culture on the brain. So I wondered if you could. I, 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 I have just a very general question about that. If you could kind of talk about that a little bit, I, I'm, 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 I know listeners will also be really fascinated in in those questions and kind of your the ways that you treat um, both film and television um, in this in this analysis.
1: Right. So, so um, specialists in brain science, as they were, you know. Um, um, <clears throat> carrying out research in whatever field they happen to occupy um, turned to various kinds of metaphors to help illustrate um, the um, claims that they that they made about uh, their findings. Um, the, I think the best example of this, is again to invoke um, Wilder Penfield, the neurosurgeon, the McGill neurosurgeon. Penfield, as I mentioned earlier, um, claimed that um, by brushing an electrode over the surface of his patient's exposed brains, he could elicit certain kinds of um, aura like or seizure like phenomena, amongst which um, were. Hallucinations of various kinds, and Penfield became convinced that those hallucinations were actually um, records of memories. And the analogy that he used to um, to uh, explain this, to illustrate it for his readers, was that of film. So, according to Penfield, memories are are, are you know memories are stored uh, permanently, archived, inaccessible for the most for often inaccessible, but permanently archived and available for replay in exactly the same way that a film is available for, for replay like that. So that metaphor, uh, that metaphor became one of the dominant metaphors for, um, for new findings about memory that, that became very important at that time. I mean, obviously, you know, that, 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 that metaphor, that metaphor is no longer really, um, given much credence nowadays, um, because memory, it's understood that memory is not, you know, permanently archived. There's no such thing as a, as a kind of permanent trace of, of, of memory in the way that Penfield thought he uh, had, had shown. Um, um, but it, you know, it had an enormous influence in the same way that, you know, another prevailing metaphor of the time was the, the brain as a computer. That too, you know, had a long and important life in the history of neuroscience. Again, it is, I think, now recognized as, as, as you know, a very inadequate way of, 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 of kind of representing the functions of, of the brain. But these metaphors, I think, did and, and continue to play a very important kind of structuring role in, um, in scientific discourse. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, that's great. And I, I, you started to talk about it and I um, can't let you go without getting into this question of kind of the, the more recent political consequences or, or dimensions of this topic and um, thinking about continuities between this kind of early Cold War brainwashing scare and the war on terror and sort of acts of torture carried out in Guantanamo um, as part of the US counterintelligence program. So I wondered if you could I mean, because of course, on one level, this book, I think, does have a political message. It's not always hitting the reader over the head with it, but I, you know, wondered if you could reflect on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess in 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 some ways, kind of the deep backstory to this book is, you know, the torture scandal. I mean, I you know, um, I. Uh, you know I followed that very, very closely from the moment it broke on the pages of The New Yorker and the new york times and and you know throughout the second half of the oh hundreds i you know I started uh, people like Jane Meyer and Alfred McCoy and Rebecca Lamoff and others began to write about both the torture scandal and then the way in which it could be traced back to these developments that I write a little bit about in my, my book. Um, and again, in, 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 in this context, the the sort of go-to manual for, for interrogated, for enhanced interrogators in the war and terror was this document Kubark, which was finalized in the early sixties. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I became interested in also was the way in which, um, you know, mid-century research into into memory, but also into the possibility of erasing memories, um, um, has has, um, in some ways. Um, contributed it, even if only indirectly, to a kind of... I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that even while memory science became established as one of the cornerstones of modern cognitive neuroscience, memory as such, public memory, (laughs) to use that term, memory as such has become an extraordinarily um, fragile and imperiled entity. And, And so we are constantly, we as Americans are constantly... Forgetting, you know, the history of the Cold War, the history of um, torture conducted under uh, under American auspices. You know, we we you know the the political scientist Darius Rahali has has I think done the best job of showing how we you know continually confuse the story of torture. With that of you know the totalitarians, we we like to we like to consult we like to we like to reassure ourselves that we in the West democracies don't carry out torture. It is only the Soviets and before them the Nazis that 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 engage in in, in torture. But you know this story that begins in the 1950s and continues right up until the early part of our century um, suggests strongly otherwise. And it, that story has been told, um, uh, repeatedly been told in the 1970s, for instance, a book that I am a big fan of by the investigative journalist John Marks called In Search of the Manchurian Candidate, laid out this whole sordid tale. He got access to um, CIA documents about about MKUltra and, and, and laid it out the story was then completely forgotten um, until it then resurfaced in the aftermath or in the early years of the war on terror. And, and so that's, I think, you know, and again, I think the Manchurian candidate serves as an interesting sort of parable of this, because the story is that the movie is about an amnesic patient after all. And, 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 and the key figure, Raymond Shaw's amnesia is in some sense, I think, you know, a metaphor for a larger, a larger, case of amnesia that afflicts, afflicts Americans in their relationship to their own history.
0: Even, even in the study of memory itself. Exactly. <laughs> Which yeah. is pretty yeah. ironic. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's just, it's very few people know that there were experiments in, ex, in experiment, there was a form of experimental amnesia was, was, was actively researched during this period that resulted in, I mean, that inflicted enormous damage on the lives of the patients that these experiments were conducted on.
0: Wow, that's disturbing. Um, well, you've been really generous with your time, and this has been, I think, a really thorough discussion of the book. I I, um, I won't keep you much longer, but I do want to give you a chance to tell listeners about any new projects that uh, that you're working on right now and where, what future uh, research directions uh, you have in mind.
1: Um. Yeah, I, I can say a few words. I mean, so one thing that I've been occupying myself with this summer is going through the papers of a man named Norbert Wiener, who is the founder of cybernetics and is a fairly key figure in, in some of the developments that I write about in the 1950s. Cybernetics was this new kind of meta discipline that emerged out of the second world war. And it um, it introduced a kind of new language, um, uh, a language of feedback and information and homeostasis into a number of different fields, one of them being uh, brain science. Um, so I had always w- intended to go there in part because Norbert Wiener and Gray Walter, who was one of the key figures in my book, were close friends. I'd always wanted to go there and look at the, um, the correspondence between the two men, but couldn't because of COVID. Um, so I've been able to do that this summer. I'm coming through his archives, and and they're quite fascinating. I'm trying to figure out what you know what direction to go in with that. Um, and then the other thing, and I'm not going to say too much about this. The other thing I will mention, however, is that I'm doing a documentary um, uh, about. Um, uh, you know, about one aspect of my book. I mean I, I I suppose I can say that it's about about the Manchurian candidate. It's very much about the Manchurian candidate and the history of that film. So
0: Wow. Yeah. Well that's uh something I'm very excited about in well, uh,
1: the breath. remember what's happening <laughs> in Hollywood right now.
0: But uh Okay, not but, the best timing, but uh, yeah, no.
1: But I'm very excited about that. So and hopefully oh. we'll see. We'll see.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed discussing the book, and uh, I um, just great to be talk to you again, and uh, great to hear what's going on and what's what's been going through your mind lately. So, thank you. Absolutely, it was a, it was a total pleasure, Paul. Pleasure was mine.